From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 2 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by El Cortez and the Golden Steer. A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. State gaming control agents are assembled in two buses in early August 1979, poised to take unprecedented enforcement action. They've been told to ride around the Las Vegas Strip until they receive their orders. A couple of hours later, the orders come. Head to the Aladdin Hotel and shut down the casino. The Nevada Gaming Commission has just voted unanimously to close the resort's mob-controlled gaming floor. It's a first for the gaming industry in the world's most famous strip of land, the playground of Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack, the showcase for the talents of Elvis Presley and Liberace, the home of the midnight idol, Wayne Newton, and the stand-up comedy getaway for Johnny Carson. This is what Gaming Control Board Chairman Roger Trounde, the state's top gaming investigator, wanted to hear. His agency spent months preparing for this day after the federal government obtained convictions against the Aladdin Corporation and some of its ranking executives for allowing the Detroit mob to unlawfully manage the casino. So once we got the vote, we sent a radio message to him and said, go in and start to close the place down. Gaming agents rushed to the Aladdin. Some headed straight for the casino cage, some went to the gaming tables, others went to the slot machines. Employees and patrons were instructed to leave as agents secured the casino and the sounds of gaming came to an abrupt halt. No more cards being shuffled, no dice rolling, no jackpots pouring out of the slot machines. Silence. Agents wrapped yellow caution tape across the gaming tables and chairs and removed cash, chips, and credit slips from lockboxes under the tables. They also put tape around the slot machines and emptied the coins. Trounde got into the act too. He grabbed a deputy attorney general and drove to the Aladdin to personally inform Sorcus Webby, the casino's general counsel of the closure. This is Trounde. And he fell apart. He started yelling and screaming and started frothing at the mouth somewhat. I don't know what that was all about, but he was, he was really angry and I think he may have been a little frightened. Webby was the brother of Peter Webby, one of the Aladdin's mob-connected owners who had been forced out by the state. But the shutdown didn't last long. The mob got an assist from a newly appointed federal judge. I'm Jeff Gehrman, an investigative reporter with the Las Vegas Review-Journal. In partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm your guide for season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, a true story about money. And so it was their piggy bank. They had the ability to get loans for whoever they wanted to get loans for. It just hit us like a tidal wave. Crime. You're in with every gangster and hoodlum in the United States. I don't go for that, Mr. Kelly. I don't go for that kind of action. I emptied that revolver in his head, then he still was alive and the battle to control the Strip. I was on television accused of fronting for the mob. We were very angry and very upset, and we knew we had been double-crossed. I was really worried about the state of Nevada. 
I've covered organized crime from the streets to the boardrooms of the Strip for more than 40 years. In season two, I'll take you on a fascinating journey as the FBI and state of Nevada take on the mob families. Federal judges battle prosecutors, and two of the biggest names in entertainment fight for the right to replace the mob on the Strip. Within hours after Nevada gaming agents closed the Aladdin Hotel's casino, federal judge Harry Claiborne ordered it reopened at the urging of the resort's attorneys. The Aladdin was back in business. It was a big blow to both state gaming regulators and federal mob-fighting prosecutors. Everyone was mad. The state had taken away the gaming licenses of the Aladdin's top executives following their March 1979 federal convictions in Detroit. Among those found guilty were the Aladdin's unlicensed entertainment director, James Tamer, and mob associate and Detroit bail bondsman, Charles Goldfarb. Through Goldfarb and Tamer, Detroit mobsters gained control of all aspects of the Aladdin casino, including who got lines of credit and comps, and which travel reps, also known as junketeers, were paid to bring tourists to the resort. Robert Liss was governor at the time and knew how important it was for the state to shut down the casino. We were having enough trouble as it was with public relations, having going after these people and the whole world learning that there had been illegal activities going on in that casinos. We were very concerned about ongoing effect on our tourism and visitation. Gaming regulators weren't about to let Claiborne's order interfere with their demand to keep the Aladdin closed until new mob-free owners could be found. And the feds were starting to think that Claiborne and fellow federal judge Roger D. Foley were making it harder for them to go after organized crime's hidden interests on the Strip. But prosecutors pressed ahead and tension kept mounting. Then, months later, in April 1980, all hell broke loose when defense lawyer Steve Stein made a strange discovery during a routine visit to the Justice Department's Organized Crime Strike Force office in Las Vegas. Stein, a former federal prosecutor, was one of a handful of attorneys who appeared in federal court defending mobsters and their associates. He was also the law partner of Oscar Goodman, the top defense attorney in Las Vegas and well known as the mob's mouthpiece. Goodman was constantly in the news battling the government on behalf of clients like Chicago Rackets kingpin Anthony Spilatro. What Stein saw at the office led to an all-out war between the Las Vegas strike force and the federal judges. Well, I went over to the strike force office to get some papers signed or something, some you know, business-related visit. I was led into the office, and I was put into a little room where I sat at a table waiting for whoever it was to sign the papers. On one of the walls or one of the doors, I cannot tell you which, were a bunch of cartoons. I stood up and I looked at them, and I read them. And the ones that struck me were Oscar, because it was funny and expected. Uh, but the one that caused chagrin was the one of Judge Foley. Foley had been on the bench for years and was straight as an arrow. He came from a prominent Nevada family of lawyers, including his father, who preceded him on the federal bench. And he had been active in political circles as a former Nevada attorney general and Clark County district attorney. 
Like most lawyers, Stein was trained to hold judges in high regard. You want to disrespect Oscar? You want to disrespect me or other criminal defense attorneys? Go ahead, but do not disrespect judges. The caricatures Stein saw also included one of Harry Claiborne, a former elite defense attorney. The flamboyant Arkansas-born Claiborne, a hard drinker with an eye for women, had defended celebrities like Frank Sinatra, prominent businessmen, and an array of mobsters. Foley and Claiborne were polar opposites. They came from different backgrounds, but both judges despised what they thought were the strike force's overreaching tactics. I spent a lot of time at the federal courthouse in those days and covered much of the war between the hard-charging federal prosecutors and the community-minded judges as it escalated. It became a career-enlightening story for me. The political climate surrounding the confrontation developed into a perfect storm that attracted national attention and made its way to the halls of Congress and the highest levels of the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. The strike force concept was designed to better coordinate the government's campaign against organized crime. Agents from the FBI, IRS, and other federal law enforcement agencies were assigned directly to strike forces, which got their orders from the Justice Department, not the local U.S. attorneys, to maintain their independence. There were maybe a dozen strike forces across the country, in cities where the Mafia families operated, like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Kansas City, Philadelphia, and Detroit. Las Vegas organized crime prosecutors were as tough as any in the country. The strike force was led by Jeffrey Anderson, a stone-faced, relentless prosecutor focused entirely on taking down the mob. He avoided talking to reporters. I could barely get him to say hello to me outside the courtroom. But behind the scenes, he was a master at using the court system to further his never-ending mission. If Anderson wasn't enough, the FBI had sent a lightning rod to run its local office to help the strike force shake up the community. His name was Joseph Yablonski, a cigar-chomping, veteran undercover agent who called himself the King of Sting. Yablonski was soft-spoken, but loved to brag about his past exploits. He did not hide his intentions after he landed in Las Vegas. He once said publicly that he came here to plant the American flag in the desert a startling comment in view of the FBI's reluctance to insert itself into local politics. Yablonski used his charm to cozy up to selected reporters, editors, and newspaper publishers. He wasted little time setting up a highly successful undercover sting that ensnared powerful county commissioners and state lawmakers. He pursued underworld figures who had long been untouched, and he did the unthinkable. He went after a lifetime appointed federal judge he believed was corrupt. Harry Claiborne. But the King of Sting became the classic example of a lawman who let the end justify the means. And his tenure here, though prolific, was cut short after only three years because of some of his own indiscretions. More on that later in the series. Michael Green, a University of Nevada Las Vegas history professor and Mob Museum board member, recalls how stormy those days were. It's incredibly significant when your two local federal judges are both critical of a major prosecutorial team from the federal government. And all of this comes together in these battles where Claiborne and Foley, who are not necessarily united or close friends or similar people, are on the same wavelength in dealing with the organized crime strike force. And the strike force sees them as different people too, but also similar 
in being part of a Las Vegas that they were determined to change. And there is a sense in the community that the federal government is picking on Nevada and especially Las Vegas. And when you consider over the years the image that Las Vegas had had, it's understandable to say, why us? There's no corruption elsewhere. You're focusing on us. Even defense lawyers got caught up in the government onslaught. They, They said they were going to go after what they called like a good old boys network. And, you know, this was a small place at the time, one of their 300,000 people. So it wasn't unusual for certain people to have more influence than others. And I'm not begrudging legitimate law enforcement activity, but I don't like how it got very personal. And more importantly, personal with the lawyers who were just doing their job. That was David Chesnoff, now considered the lawyer to the stars. If you're a celebrity and get in trouble in Las Vegas, you go to Chesnoff. But in those days, Chesnoff was still earning his stripes. I remember one time representing somebody in front of a federal grand jury. We were exercising rights, I believe, under the Fifth Amendment at the time. And I got told by the federal prosecutors that they were going to take action against me for obstructing the investigation or having my client assert his rights. And at the time, I, I said to them, no problem, because Judge Claiborne was the chief judge and he was responsible for the grand jury. I said, let's go to court right now and tell the judge what you think and I'll tell the judge what I think. So there was a period of time where it was very contentious. Veteran defense lawyer Thomas Pataro was learning the ropes, too. We were still uh, at our idealism, I think, of what the law should be. We were, you know, not that far removed from law school. And lo and behold, uh, we're in the middle of something that I guess you could almost describe it as the wild, wild west. Yablonski and his FBI agents had developed a good working relationship with Las Vegas police intelligence detectives and a newly elected Clark County Sheriff, John McCarthy. McCarthy had defeated his longtime boss, Ralph Lamb, in 1978 and was not considered part of the Las Vegas establishment. Together, Yablonski and McCarthy kept Anthony Spilatro and his people on the street under constant surveillance. In this audio provided by the Mob Museum, Goodman poked fun at the FBI during the 2017 public forum, The Media and the Mob in Las Vegas. I felt I was the safest person in the world. I had the FBI following me every single day. But sometimes things got out of hand. The Spalacho gang and their lawyers were constantly stopped for traffic violations. Ah! During one stop at night, detectives shot and killed Frank Bluestein a Hacienda Hotel maitre d' and son of a culinary union official tied to Spilatro after they saw him with a handgun. They had followed him from the Upper Crust, a pizzeria at Flamingo Road and Maryland Parkway owned by Spilatro enforcer Frank Collada. The Upper Crust was a regular hangout for Spilatro and his crew of street thugs. The 1980 shooting was ruled a justifiable use of deadly force but it created more tension on the streets. There were lawsuits and court motions in criminal cases, all designed to seek retribution against the cops. The Chicago mob even put out a contract on the life of the two detectives. Goodman was in the middle of the Bluestein campaign. At that same mob museum forum, he did not hide his feelings about the conduct of Metro Police and the FBI. They were an outlaw group 
of law enforcement officers here, and they were led by another outlaw group of law enforcement officers here, which was the FBI under Joe Yablonski. One night, someone mysteriously fired bullets into the home of Spalatro's brother, John. The Spalatro family believed intelligence cops had fired the rounds, but that was never proven. Thomas Pataro asked the FBI to investigate, but the agency could not determine who did it. Those were wild days indeed. I remember being summoned to the office of the Metro Intelligence Commander after I wrote a story about police wiretaps involving Bluestein. When I got there, the commander read me my rights and told me he was investigating how I learned about the wiretaps. I didn't give up my sources and the investigation went nowhere. It was a time when the distinction between the good guys and bad guys was starting to blur, Pataro says. Everything became sensationalized, and a large measure, it was bad for the community, it was bad for everyone that was here. It was not a pleasant time to be uh, practicing criminal defense. And in the middle of all this, Nevada gaming regulators had their own troubles with Harry Claiborne. Coming up, how the federal judge spoiled the state's plans to close the Aladdin Casino, and how the state reacted during a time when its image was taking a hit around the world. Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, Season 2, continues after a word from our sponsors. The Nevada Gaming Commission's unprecedented decision to shut down the troubled Aladdin Casino in August 1979 in the wake of the mob's hidden control there did not happen overnight. Regulators in March had barred top Aladdin executives, including the mob's main connection, James Tamer, from the casino. They appointed a manager, veteran gaming executive Leo Lewis, while the Aladdin was looking for a new owner. But as the weeks passed, with no one emerging to buy the resort, the Gaming Commission lost its patience and in August ordered all casino operations to stop, putting the jobs of some 2,000 Aladdin employees on the line. Former U.S. Senator Harry Reid, who chaired the Gaming Commission, had led the charge among his commission colleagues to close the casino. It wasn't easy for a number of reasons. You had not only the Nevada press, but national press looking at everything we did. and. Uh, we had all those jobs that we were worried about. Governor List was worried about the employees, too. We knew that there had been uh, skimming going on and hidden ownership. And uh, the employees, of course, were a factor in all of this. They were very vociferous and forceful in taking the position that they didn't want their jobs to be terminated. Uh, they needed the work. To this day, List still can't believe Judge Claiborne allowed the Aladdin Casino to reopen. It never happened before. And Harry just, he made some comment like, well, we, I have special powers. I have special powers. I can do this. Bud Hicks, then the state's top deputy attorney general, says Claiborne's decision stunned regulators. I think uh, what Harry Claiborne did shocked everybody. It, it was really beyond the pale that he uh, stepped into a gaming commission disciplinary action at that point where they had clear authority under the statutes to revoke licenses and impose these types of penalties. And, uh, you know, I mean, he stepped in on a very short notice. I'm sure the federal strike force guys were probably just going nuts over that. So the state decided to fight Claiborne. For the first time in history, regulators had to go to federal court to regain their right to control a licensed casino. 
Months later, then-Nevada Attorney General Richard Bryan persuaded a federal appeals court in San Francisco to overturn Claiborne. And by July 1980, almost a full year after the action to close the property, regulators once again shut down the Aladdin Casino. But as the gaming regulators challenged Claiborne's decision, the feds were pushing even harder against the mob's influence at the Aladdin. In September 1979, Aladdin General Counsel Sorkis Webby and seven other defendants, including the Aladdin Corporation and construction giant Dell Webb Corporation, were indicted by a federal grand jury in Las Vegas. The defendants were charged in a $1 million kickback scheme prosecutors alleged had defrauded the Teamsters Central States Pension Fund. The mob-dominated fund had financed a multi-million dollar remodeling project at the Aladdin that added a hotel tower and the high-tech performing arts center we described in episode one. The case was prosecuted by the chief of the Las Vegas Strike Force, Jeffrey Anderson, who was not a favorite of Claiborne and his fellow judge, Roger Foley. A host of prominent defense attorneys from Las Vegas and across the country bombarded the government with motions attacking its case. The first phase didn't go to trial until June 1981. It ended up lasting six months, the longest criminal federal case in Nevada history at the time. I remember covering the trial. It was boring. Lots of paperwork introduced as evidence. The jurors seemed to feel that way too. They acquitted all of the defendants. It was a stinging loss for the government, but prosecutors ended up getting a couple of convictions at the second trial in Reno on related charges. Webby was found guilty of tax fraud for not paying taxes on $160,000 in construction kickbacks he had taken. He died two years later while appealing his conviction. Still ahead, the discovery of those crazy caricatures mocking the federal judges turns the courthouse into a national embarrassment and the war between the prosecutors and judges escalates. Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, season two, continues after a word from our sponsors. Attorney Steve Stein got angrier and angrier as he left the Las Vegas Strike Force office in 1980. The caricatures he saw lampooning the judges were incorporated into a mock man-on-the-street interview with satirical answers to the question, does organized crime really run the casinos in the state of Nevada? Stein's celebrated law partner, Oscar Goodman, was shown with a big nose and other distorted facial features. Judge Roger Foley was depicted as a circus clown. In the space reserved for Claiborne's photo were the words, no pictures, please. The display was obviously done in jest, but years later, in a lengthy opinion related to bar proceedings involving Claiborne, the Nevada Supreme Court said federal prosecutors demonstrated, quote, appalling arrogance and contempt for the judicial system. When Stein and Goodman informed Foley about the caricatures in 1980, Foley became furious, and relations between the judges and prosecutors at the federal courthouse took another nosedive. Foley removed himself from hearing all strike force cases, but first he ordered U.S. Marshals to take the unprecedented step of seizing the strike force materials. Stan Hunterton, who was a member of the Las Vegas Strike Force, recalls that the cartoons were on a door that anyone could see if they were passing by, and the Marshals took the entire door. 
The caricatures were meant to be a joke and relieve some of the tension within the office. But in hindsight, it was a mistake, Hunterton says. Obviously, it shouldn't have been done in this case. You know, it, it should have been thought about, or if somebody put one up, you know, you could leave it up for a day and take it down. But uh, it, was, it was a bad idea. Days later, Foley told the New York Times that he was concerned the materials could have been seen by grand jurors, who were considering, among other things, government evidence of the mob's ties to strip casinos. He blamed Jeffrey Anderson for the display and called it gross misconduct on the part of the government. Foley had been critical of Anderson, the strike force chief, months earlier, accusing him of leaking information to the media from sealed FBI affidavits and bending the law as Anderson and the strike force moved against the mob. About the same time, Bruce Thompson, a federal judge in Reno, also took a shot at Anderson in a legal opinion, calling him schizophrenic. And then Harry Claiborne chimed in. Like Foley, Claiborne had been critical of the strike force's tactics. It was no secret around the courthouse that the strike force viewed Claiborne as an obstacle to its pursuit of the mafia's casino ties. Years of defense lawyering had taught him how to punch holes in government cases, and now Claiborne had the authority to put that to good use as a judge. Days after Foley became incensed over the great cartoon caper, I reported that the same federal grand jury used by the strike force to investigate organized crime was looking into alleged criminal wrongdoing by Claiborne. The case focused on allegations the judge had hired a private detective, Eddie LaRue, to conduct illegal wiretapping for him while Claiborne was a defense attorney. The allegations were old and could not be corroborated at the time the U.S. Senate confirmed his nomination to the bench in 1978. LaRue, a former jockey, was widely known as one of the Valley's top defense investigators. Dan Tanna, the private detective played by Robert Urich in the late 1970s television series Vegas, was patterned after LaRue. LaRue was fiercely loyal to Claiborne, and he denied the wiretapping allegations. Word of the investigation sent Claiborne into a public tirade against the strike force. In a follow-up story I did, Claiborne accused the strike force of being, quote, a bunch of crooks, and said he wasn't going to let the prosecutors run roughshod over the Las Vegas community. Bimalan Brown was Nevada's politically appointed U.S. attorney at the time, who worked alongside the strike force. Brown says he was back in Washington, sitting in the office of the chief of the Justice Department's criminal division, talking about a local case when he heard the news of Claiborne's outburst. By that time, the story had spread to the rest of the media. And just then, TV comes on, and Harry, and who I really like, but Harry Claiborne's on TV, and this is when he was in the back, and I think he'd been drinking a little bit, and he was back steps of the courthouse and called the FBI some derogatory remark or something like that. And he says, and the, the head of the criminal division says, You want me to try it in front of him? We're not going to try it in front of him. And he, you know, you shut your mouth and you go home. For his part, Jeffrey Anderson was a good soldier for the Justice Department. He would not engage with Claiborne and defend himself in the media. He left that to Brown, who still believes the strike force under Anderson's leadership did yeoman's work in Las Vegas. But Brown says he was also fond of Claiborne. Yeah, I, I like Harry Claiborne. I thought he was a good guy. And, and I know a lot of people in the FBI 
no names mentioned, liked him too. They liked the way he ran his court, what he did. There was a difference of opinion. That's all it was. But in looking back at his tenure as Nevada's top federal prosecutor, Brown says his office might have been a little too aggressive in shaking up the establishment. We got cooperation from the local law enforcement people. It was, you know, getting Washington to get behind us, and they just didn't do it. And I think they were under political pressure from some of the higher-ups in Nevada to not give us what we needed. Brown wouldn't name names, but it was no secret that then-U.S. Senator Paul Laxalt of Nevada, who was best friends with President Ronald Reagan, was not happy with what the government was doing in Las Vegas. Joe Yablonski used to badmouth Laxalt all the time in private conversations, and Laxalt knew it. You'll hear more about Yablonski's exploits and indiscretions in Las Vegas later in the series. And you'll hear how he struck a deal with the devil to persuade fugitive brothel baron Joe Conforti to return to the country to accuse Harry Claiborne of taking bribes. But first, coming up in season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, we'll go inside the high-profile battle between Las Vegas icons Wayne Newton and Johnny Carson to buy the troubled Aladdin Hotel after the Detroit mob was forced out. And then, threats against Newton and his family. You'll hear from Newton and Carson's partner, longtime Nevada gaming executive Ed Nigro. Nigro didn't pull any punches. We were very angry and very upset, and we knew we had been double-crossed. This has been Part 3, Season 2 of Mobbed Up, a production for the Las Vegas Review-Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you are enjoying it, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening right now. Help us out by telling your friends and by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The series is reported by me, Jeff Gehrman, field and studio recording by Larry Meir and audio engineering by Greg Conway. We'd like to thank the Mob Museum for excerpts of Oscar Goodman during the public forum, The Media and the Mob in Las Vegas. You can find the forum on the museum's website. If you have feedback, email me at jgerman at reviewjournal.com. We would like to thank our Mobbed Up Season 2 presenting sponsor, Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by The Golden Steer and El Cortez.